third book of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and chapter 13, as we continue our series of expositions, we'll start in verse 18. As you're opening your Bibles, let me welcome those who might be worshiping through the live stream or watching the recording later. May God's word revive you, encourage you, and bring you closer to the Lord. Uh, We'll be reading beginning in verse 18 through verse 30, all verses about the kingdom of God. He, Jesus, said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from east and from west and from north and from south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. May the Lord bless the hearing, believing, and obeying of his holy word. Amen. According to the 2020 census, In the United States, there are over 370 religions, not just denominations, but religions, organizational worship or spiritual activity of some sort. There are 370 religious bodies with hundreds of thousands of local groups and adherents. Worldwide, the number, at least on the internet and multiple sites, is closer to four thousand religions. Man is a religious creature. We are made for relationship with our creator. So it should not surprise us that even sinful men grope about for some connection with the transcendent, some course of meaning and purpose in life, and so our religions abound. But let me ask, Do all those religions accomplish what they aim to do? 
Or do all roads lead to heaven? To a relationship with God, our maker, to an eternity in heaven. Does it matter what you believe? All those hundreds and thousands of religions, can they all be right, even though several and many, if not most, contradict one another? The Bible tells us there is but one way. One. There's only one way to be right with the maker of heaven and earth. Jesus told us, no one comes to the Father but by me. So if the world has all these options, whether it's 4,000 or in the United States 370, or even if we took the 370 and just wiped that out and said the six or eight major religions, that's a better odds, right? One in six. How do people find the one true in right way, there are many doors to be opened, many choices. Well, God sent his son and the Lord Jesus Christ called everyone to himself. He said, according to John's gospel, I am the door. Come to me. God in Christianity comes for us. And the ministry of Jesus is marked by that great invitation come unto me all ye who are weary and heavy laden i am the the way the truth and the life these are the claims of jesus not just preachers jesus brought an exclusive message there is only one way and as we'll see today that's good news even though it challenges the pluralism that's so prevalent in our world today. It's always been a pluralistic world where each sheep has tended to go their own way. In these passages, Jesus begins with his own question, how do I explain the kingdom of God? It's arrived in his presence and he's been doing things and so he explains two things about the kingdom of God. And then, as questions are are pricked in the thoughts of his hearers, they ask how many are going to get in? And Jesus answers that. So we're talking about the kingdom, and the main point this morning is the very words of Jesus, strive to enter. We can describe it. We can talk about who's falling short and won't be in it. But the main point, the invitation of Jesus, once more given not just then, but now, today and here, is to strive to enter in. Let's begin with this question that Jesus asks, what is the kingdom of God like? What is the kingdom of God like? That's how he starts in verse 18. But he actually starts with this word, therefore, or the narrator tells us, the inspired Dr. Luke says, Jesus therefore said, when you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. Get it? It's a good way to remember a Bible study tool. Why is it there? Well, there's a continuity. Other things had been happening which leads Jesus to this topic. What had been happening? Well, he'd been talking about cursing a fig tree, a, 
an image of Israel that wasn't being fruitful. And then he had healed a woman with this horrible spirit and did so on a Sabbath day. And that rankled some of the religious folks. Jesus had been teaching and doing many things as the kingdom of God had been arriving. What was the very first public message of Jesus? At least Mark chapter 1 records it. Uh, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, therefore. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because the Messiah, the king, was here. So that's why he's teaching about the kingdom here and there. And so he describes the kingdom because it wasn't being fully received or understood, of course. Jesus came to his own and largely his own did not receive him. So he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? Let me clarify what God's going to do to bring about his kingdom. And by implication, when the Messiah comes and when the Messiah starts working, how are you going to know it? Do you know what the kingdom of heaven is like? And actually, for Bible-believing Christians, that's a challenging question. There's really no comparison. His kingdom is different from all the kingdoms of the world. We know how politics works, and we're in another cycle of politics. Pray for our nation. Among the nations on earth, it is still aiming to be a nation of laws and of the people. But the kingdom of God is different. It's a spiritual kingdom. Not so much a physical kingdom, but there are physical manifestations. We can summarize, perhaps just for ease of memory, this definition. The kingdom of God is the rule of God in the hearts and minds of people. The kingdom of God is the rule of God in the hearts and minds of his people. And as he converts and as more are converted, the kingdom of God is growing The kingdom is not simply where Jesus is pointing and doing miracles. And if he moves on, the kingdom moves on. No, the kingdom is present in the people of God. But it arrives and becomes manifest with Jesus. Therefore, that's an important word. Because people were noticing things, Jesus asked, what is it like? And then Jesus gives two answers. The two answers. We we actually call them parables because they're little word pictures even if they're just a sentence long (laughs) it's figurative uh, description of a spiritual truth the first is about a mustard plant how many people like mustard no it doesn't matter he's talking about the mustard seed I've seen this we have a spice rack you may have some on your spice rack if you take it out this afternoon kids ask your mom it is a tiny little seed yes scientists have found some seeds that are smaller and don't get me started what Jesus says is absolutely true in the common life of the people in his day the mustard seed it is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden elsewhere in the scripture Jesus calls it the smallest of seeds it was for them in that place at that time. Tiny, tiny little grain. And it's not so much the tininess that Jesus is asserting, but what does he say? It is like a grain of mustard seed that, 
Here's the action. A man took and sowed in his garden. He planted it and it grew and became a tiny little sprout. Well, at first, and then maybe a small little plant. Oh, there's a plant growing, but it kept growing. And then there was a little bush and it wasn't so little. It was a bigger bush and the bush was stockier and taller. And eventually the bush is a tree. What is Jesus saying? This mustard seed, which grows from a little speck into something seven or eight feet tall, or some mustard trees are 10 to 12 feet tall in certain conditions. The contrast is the incomparable growth, the incredible growth from obscurity to unmistakable size and presence. If I had a mustard seed sitting on the communion table, you couldn't see it from there. But if there was a tree, no one could miss it. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God may start small and perhaps unseen, but it will grow and it will have a presence that no one will miss. And it talks about birds too. Do we see that? It grew and became a tree, and birds of the air made its nests in its branches. That's a common way of saying something to the Hebrew mindset. In the Old Testament, several times when you wanted to describe something as growing, whether it's uh, in the book of Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom grew like a giant tree and a lot of birds nested in its branches. I know a bird can make do with a bush, and sometimes the bush branch will sag. But when you're talking about a tree that can accommodate many birds, you're talking about something sizable. That's the Bible's language for size and significance. And actually, if we look at Ezekiel, when it talks about birds in a tree, this is a tree of God's planting, it makes the point that many nations will come to the work of God through his Messiah. This is what Ezekiel 17, 23 says. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. And in the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. A pictureful way to describe the global work of God. The kingdom of God would grow in amazing ways with a fantastic finish. That's what Jesus says. But it starts small. I love the writings of J.C. Ryle. If you're looking for an author or a commentator that's reliable, that's clear and has warmth, uh, John Charles Ryle, R-Y-L-E. He's got works that I encourage you. He has a little paragraph that describes the growth of Christianity. It's so well written. This is what he says. A religion which at first seems so feeble and helpless and powerless that it could not live. Christianity. Its founder was one who was poor in this world and ended his life by dying the death of a malefactor on a cross. Christianity's first adherents were a little company whose number probably did not exceed a thousand. We know there were 120 in the upper room when the Lord left this world. Its first preachers 
were a few fishermen and publicans who were, most of them, unlearned and ignorant men. Its first starting point was a despised corner of the earth called Judea, a petty tributary province in the vast empire of Rome. Its first doctrine was eminently calculated to call forth the enmity of the natural heart and mind. Christ crucified. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, foolishness. Its first movements brought down on its friends persecutions from every quarter. If ever, J.C. Ryle says, if ever there was a religion which was a little grain of seed at its beginning, that religion was the gospel, Christianity. It started that small. But now Christianity, indeed, perhaps the largest religion in the world, it grows. Philip Ryken points out uh, the way it grows. He says, at times it's invisible and almost imperceptible until it reaches all nations with its transforming power. Can anything good come from Nazareth? You bet. For even within the first three centuries, Christianity had spread throughout the Roman Empire. And by the third century, there was a church of Christians in every province of the Roman Empire. It would grow. And it continues to grow. But there's a second word picture here at the beginning of this section. And the second word picture is really from the kitchen. The first is from the garden and from plants. This is, uh, has to do with leaven. Verse uh, 20. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Okay, I see a lot of glazed looks there on the non-baker's eyes. What is leaven? It's, it's modern day we use yeast, but leaven was a little bit of leftover from the previous batch of dough that was allowed to get ripe. And it would be, some people called it starter. The leaven could be inserted into a new batch of flour dough and then it would spread its influence throughout the dough. What's interesting here? is leaven is just that little bit, but how much flour is this person working? Three measures of flour. That's a lot of flour. According to one commentator, it's the equivalent of 16 five-pound bags. Are you making any bread? Oh, yeah, this person was making a lot of bread. When mixed with water, it'd be over 100 pounds of flour. That's a lot. But again, Jesus shows you, you put that little bit of leaven in. The starter will affect the whole. It will spread. You knock it down, you roll it over, you let it sit. And it grows. What does this image contribute? But that there is an intensive aspect of the growth. It's often hidden and working unseen. Like leaven in bread dough. There are two images here that Jesus gives us about the kingdom of God, which help us, I think, understand why why many were missing the boat when Jesus first came and started gathering disciples. People just weren't getting it. They had different expectations for the Messiah. Oh, when the Messiah comes, boom, he's going to kick in the door of Rome. He's going to, like a swashbuckling arrow, 
well, I can't say Errol Flynn. No one, okay, one laugh. Jesus is not the Messiah that's going to bring sudden, rapid overturning of political powers and plant his flag in the middle of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus says, guys, you're following me? Let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. It starts small, but it is potent and it will grow. God works differently than the world. So he lays that out there. These are two pictures of the kingdom. And laying those things out there raises questions. Let's move to our second uh, heading this morning. Who will enter the kingdom of God? Uh, Jesus is hit with a question as he's traveling on his way. He's a traveling teacher and this crowd is still with him. The disciples and others, and according to verse uh, 23, someone asked him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? What's he thinking about? Well, he's thinking about, okay, this tree's going to get big. The, the loaf, even that hundred pounds of bread dough, that's going to get leavened. How, how, when I'm thinking the kingdom, how many people are going to be in this? Because the common assumption of the Jews is, well, all the Jews will be in the kingdom of God, but not the Gentile dogs. Just the few, the proud, the Jewish. That, that was the mindset. They were the covenant people of God and, and God's blessed privileges given to them were often abused and became excuses for pride. They were overlooking a lot of things God had told them. Like in Deuteronomy, I didn't pick you because you're smarter, bigger, or better. God is a God of grace. Even as he calls out the Jews and makes a people for himself out of nothing. Well, the Jews had assumed that they were in heaven and, and yet birds of the air all in the tree. Man, you, are you thinking others are going to get in? Look at this crowd. Some of these people aren't faithful in the synagogue. Jesus, who's, who's getting saved? Who's in? The questions were revealing their assumptions. And how does Jesus answer? He doesn't answer with a number or specific direct answer. Rather, Jesus turns to something more important than just satisfying their curiosity. He said it doesn't matter. He, well, he doesn't say that, but he, he, he doesn't address how many will get in there. He does say, will you be in there? That's where he goes. And is that exciting? Jesus addresses not only the questioner. Look at how he begins his answer. Someone had asked him the question. And at the end of verse 23, and he said to them, Jesus is speaking to more than just the guy with the question because a lot of people were leaning in for the answer. A lot of religious people wanted to know. So Jesus addresses all of them. And he gives this very significant exhortation. It's a very special answer. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many... I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. That doesn't tell us how many are going to be in there. But he says a lot of people thinking they're going to be in won't. 
So the main command is strive to enter. Jesus speaks with urgency here. There's nothing subtle, roundabout. Uh, let's talk about the weather first for a few minutes. Jesus goes right to the truth the Jewish audience needed to hear. The religious audience. He cares for their souls. This Greek word strive to enter. He doesn't just say enter. That would work, right? Enter is a verb. We know what it means. Go right in. Enter. He says strive to enter. Okay, that's kind of a strong word in English. Do you know what it is in Greek? I wrote it down. Got to find it. Here it is. Agonizomai. Agonizomai. Eight times in the New Testament. You might hear an English word there, agonizomai. It means to contend, to fight, to strive earnestly. And yes, our English word is a descendant, to agonize. What is it to agonize? I told the story during prayer week of how I cried for help to God out loud, my hands raised, just calling for God's help when one of my children was injured and was unconscious. I was agonizing in prayer. That wasn't the time for the composed pulpit prayer. That was a striving for God's help in emergency setting. God help. Agonize, agonizomize, strive, contend, give effort to find that narrow door and to enter. Because... There are factors that would entangle you. Your sinful outlook, your pride, your divided heart. Your own sense of your own self-righteousness. Door, I'll make a door. Isn't that kind of the American answer? I need a door to get in, I'll just make a door. Kick it in. Hollywood mindset. The reality is what Jesus tells us. I am the door. Strive to enter in. Resist self. Turn from self. Turn to the Savior. Paul did that when Jesus confronted him. Jesus blocked the road. Paul, if you're going anywhere, you got to go through me. And he was converted on the road to Damascus. And even as Paul lived out his Christian life, he had that sense of striving and effort that described his faith and his outlook. He wrote about it in Philippians 3, 13 and 14. And this is going to come up in our Sunday school class on perseverance. Paul said, brothers, I do not consider that I've already made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. I press on. Friends, if you want to follow Christ, there needs to be a little agonizomai. There needs to be a little effort. Your faith has to be alive and kicking and show a little action. Douglas Milne says, salvation is not for the half-hearted, but for the single-minded. Christianity it is indeed narrow. There's only one place to land the plane. There's only one door that accesses eternity with God, and that's Jesus Christ. 
Who will enter the kingdom of God? Those questions. And then Jesus answered, just strive to enter in for yourself. And then Jesus has words of surprise. What else does he go on to say down in verses 29 and 30? Let's drop down and pick those up. He says, a little bit later in the paragraph, he says, people will come. So he's talking about entering. People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. It sounds like they're going to be welcome. They're not just going to get into the court of the Gentiles outside. They're going to come to the inside of the gathering. They're going to recline with God. They're welcome, but they're coming from all corners of the compass Jesus is looking ahead to the Gentiles being included. Christianity is exclusive and narrow. There's only one way. But yet Christianity is also inclusive. Whosoever believes, whosoever comes, any sinner that comes, you you don't have to be of a certain ethnic tradition. You don't have to have certain accomplishments of religion to come. You just need to be a sinner. You just need to be one of God's creatures who needs to be reconciled and you come to God and say, God, have mercy on me. So in that respect, Christianity, though exclusive, is also inclusive. It's not just the good religious people that get in. It's any sinner. Didn't Jesus work so hard to make that clear? And they'll come from all points of the compass. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. Oh, won't that be a surprise? Jesus raised some questions describing the kingdom of God as different than the Jewish expectation of the day. And he said, hey, you better check if you're getting in. And surprise, a whole bunch of other folks are on their way. It rattled them. It rattled them. And then he added in verse 30, he said, some who are last will be first, and the first will be last. Friends, that verse is so often taken out of context. Please stop doing that um, and don't treat it as something silly because it is a sober, even a scary truth spoken to religious people. You think you're in line first? Be careful. You might not get in. You might be last. And those people that you thumb your nose at, they're not religious. Their life is a mess. They don't do what you do on Sundays. The last, they may be getting in ahead of you. That's a sobering, frightening, somber word from Jesus. But he says it so that those of us without much hope, without much to offer God, I'm not first. It gives us hope. And it shows the grace of God, doesn't it? Specifically, Jesus, I think, has in view those Gentiles who were disdained. They didn't know the Bible stories. They weren't circumcised. They had never gone to the temple or sang Psalm 23 or Psalm 100. They just weren't included. But they can be and they will be brought by Jesus. Jesus spoke with that woman at the well whose moral life was a mess. 
and said, God is seeking those who will worship him. And he opened the door to her and she entered in. That woman at the well will be in heaven. We're told by the Apostle Paul in that great letter in the New Testament, the book of Romans, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, this gospel that Jesus is telling us. For, says Paul, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The door is open. And won't we be surprised who's in and who's not? Let me get to that final category. Who will be shut out of the kingdom? It's not something I like to talk about as much as getting in. The good news is always happier than the bad news. But Jesus spends some time talking about it, and he gets a little descriptive here, doesn't he? Yeah. He described how the kingdom works, and to those that were listening and maybe not getting it, he goes on to say this in verse um, uh, 25, after his command to seek and try. He says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, And you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, "We, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Jesus is putting in third person story form truth about himself. And it's clearly mingled when you hear those excuses. They sound exactly like what people who had been following Jesus in that day would have said. Who will be shut out of the kingdom? The first answer is those who presume to know Jesus, but don't. Those who assume or presume to know Jesus. This is after the door shut, so this is at the day of judgment when things are being made plain and their thoughts come out. They think they're saved. Hey, why aren't I in? Why is the door closed? Hey, I'm here. You know, I, I was with Jesus on the road when he told that parable. I was on the hillside when Jesus gave that sermon on the mount. Oh, it was a lot longer than I've read, but it was good. I, I, I can remember parts of it if you want me to quote it. And you know that, that time? Hey, hey. You've got to let me in because when Jesus fed the 5,000, and there were way more people than that there, I ate some of the loaves and fishes. What was good? And we had as much food as we wanted. I was there. I saw him pick up the baskets and load them with the leftovers. Or someone else, you know how they all want to top each other's story. Well, you know what? I was in that house Uh, of the Pharisees when Jesus was there at the table and we were all eating together and both our hands were right next to each other in the dish. Yeah, I, I sat at the table, reclined at the table with Jesus. Can you let me in? Claims to be familiar with Jesus. Oh yeah, I know who he is. I've heard him. I've, I, I, I've seen him. I can tell you the stuff that he said because I wrote some of it down. 
That's not enough. It's not enough to be familiar with Jesus. Isn't that what we are in America? We know about Jesus. We're interested. We're curious. You've known the stories from your youth. It's not enough. From the teachings of Jesus, those who know Jesus and just presume that familiarity is enough, it's not. Salvation is more. Are we hearing this? We're the familiar ones. I know so many in this room and your vibrant love for Jesus. And that's a blessing. There are probably some listening who could tell us, quote some verses, say they know Jesus, but Jesus here says people are going to get shut out if they don't really know me. So we can say who will be shut out? Those without a saving relationship. Those without a saving relationship. It's not just the information about Jesus. It's knowing him. And he knows you. Like the shepherd, the sheep hear my voice and they follow. And the shepherd knows their names. And they come when they're called. That's the relationship. When some sinners, rather than, than being sorrowful and despondent, will become angry in their rebellion. Yeah, well, who wants to be in your kingdom anyways? And they'll hide behind this mask of anger. We know these things happen in life. Opportunities get missed. It's in our movies, it's in our literature, it's in our experience. And as we get older, we say, yeah, I missed that opportunity. I'm sad about that. Or, or somebody else knocked me out of contention. That makes me angry. These, these are true in life. And Jesus says many will experience those same reactions when they are not in the kingdom of heaven. Doug Milne says the words of Jesus are a sober warning to make friends with him while we may. The nature of that relationship is all important. You don't just need to know the Bible verses or data. You need to know Jesus. You need to speak to him. He's alive. He can hear you pray. And he will converse with you by his spirit and his word. You need a relationship with Jesus. And that's so much more than just being religious. Don't be shut out from the kingdom. The final thing Jesus really makes plain here in this picture. He says the master will do this. But it's really Jesus who is the judge. Very few people in history have spoken more about heaven and hell than Jesus. He spoke a lot about that place of punishment reserved for the devil and his angels and for those who die in their rebellion against God, refusing the gospel invitation. Their eternal destination, Jesus made clear. Here it's Jesus who is the judge. His decision stands. 
He said, I am the door. The door of the sheepfold, the door of the kingdom. In Revelation chapter 1, one of the profound things the risen Lord says to the Apostle John in glory as he speaks to John, and John's going to write the book of Revelation, one of the interesting things Jesus says in chapter 1 is, I hold the keys of life and death. To me, that's a comfort. No one dies without Jesus turning a key. That's a comfort. But Jesus, the scriptures tell us, is the judge who will say, depart. When he came and walked the earth with grace and with patience, he said, come, come, come to me. Today is the day of salvation. And many do get saved with that invitation. When Jesus speaks about departing and judgment... And we know about it before it happens. That also can prompt someone to be converted. One of my own children tells the story of contemplating these eternal destinies. Sobering their thinking. And leading them to pray for salvation. Some will answer Jesus' invitation to strive and enter. Others need to hear the hard reality that the door will shut and there's no second chance. If you're on the wrong side of that door today, go through it before it shuts. Go through it before it shuts. And you don't have to think about the end of time with that door shutting. When this life ends for you, it will be shut. Don't presume that you'll be able to settle it. Oh, when I'm in my 60s. Oh, the 60s come pretty fast. And I've got a real birthday this year, so I'll get to move another notch in that direction. Lord willing. When age comes, we think, oh, I'll settle up later in life. We don't know. Read the obituary page sometime. It's very sobering. People younger than you in the papers on that page. There's a point in a man wants to die and then the judgment. This life is the life of opportunity. Second Corinthians, Paul writes this in 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Christ will be our judge. Let me bring a couple words in closing just to focus us and help us. Um, Three words. Positively stated and negatively stated. First is be encouraged. I really hope that whenever you grasp the message of a Bible passage, it brings you some encouragement. God wrote these things to enlighten us and to help us, not just to condemn us. So be encouraged. Specifically, these early parables about the kingdom. We should be encouraged that God's kingdom grows slowly and sometimes imperceptibly, but it will grow and it has a potency that will be sufficient. Sometimes we underestimate the small things. 
Oh, there were only so many at a prayer meeting. Oh, pastor, we, we haven't had any baptisms in the last few months. We, we sometimes look and see the slowness or the modest progress and we're discouraged. But doesn't Jesus teach us that the kingdom grows this way? It works within and there are things happening within the hearts and minds of people seated in this room that would blow you away if you saw what God is doing. God is substantiating faith. He's opening eyes and minds and hearts to the gospel. God is at work. So be encouraged. Do not be discouraged. The kingdom of God has a life all its own, says one, because it's God's kingdom. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, we just sow and plant, but God gives the growth. Secondly, make sure. Be encouraged and make sure. Do not presume that you know Jesus. Make sure. And this is really important. If anyone here has any doubt at all about your assurance, whether you would be in heaven if you were to die tonight, if there's any doubt, make sure. That's what Jesus wants. Agonizomai, he says, strive to enter. Make sure. You may be a baptized member of a church. You can come to a pastor and elder after service and say, I'm struggling with my assurance and I want to make sure. Have that conversation. Make it clear. Presumption is dangerous. Get the answers that are available. Jesus wanted people to make sure he even included this very topic in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, it sounds very similar to what Luke has recorded Matthew 7, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for, wide, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. And for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. Matthew 7. It's hard. Agonizomai. We strive, so get some help. Strengthen one another's hand. Make sure. Talk to your loved ones. Did you hear that sermon today? Are you sure? I'm sure. I think I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Are you sure? And then talk about what that means. And finally, be encouraged. Make sure. And act now. Act now for yourself or for those in your sphere. Do not delay. The door will shut. If you're sure, are you sure about your loved ones, your neighbors, your co-workers? One reason we don't share our faith is because we don't see the peril others are in. It's not enough that they're religious or that they like you being religious. They need a relationship with Jesus. So act now for yourself. And if you're good, act for their good to show them the Savior. Go over this passage, say, you know what we heard on Sunday? Oh boy. Or email the link to the sermon and then follow up and be praying. But take action. May the Lord bless the words of Jesus declared here this day in your hearing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your holy word. We thank you that we have all four Gospels to tell us about the life and teachings of Jesus. 
And this passage is clear and as challenging as it is. Father, we thank you for information about your kingdom, the way it comes, its power, its growth, and its wide open door. Father, it's been centuries since Jesus came. That door has been open. But it is only open during our days of living for us. Father, we pray that many would enter. Many would hear the words of Jesus, repent and believe and be saved. Father, may we serve in the kingdom by spreading the truth, believing it and sharing it. Father, bless the remainder of our day together as believers in this place. And bless the gospel as it goes forth across the world. For the kingdom of God will not fail to reach some from every tribe and tongue under heaven before the last day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.